Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its richness. Father, thank you that it speaks to us today in our lives. And we pray that as we meet together now, you would please, by your spirit, open it up that we might see your truths. We might see your son. And that we might see how we need to respond. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if it's helpful to you, you should have have that little bit of kind of greeny paper that just gives you a bit of a guide as to where we're going. If that's your thing that's helpful to take notes, please do use that. If it's not, by all means, just throw it down beside you. But it's the summertime, isn't it? People are going away on holidays. I don't know where you've been, but Claire and I had two days in Lincoln just at the beginning of this week. Um, so when you're in Lincoln, there's, I mean, there's not a huge amount to do, but there's got a castle and a cathedral. So we looked at those. And as we went around the cathedral, they've just got this huge building project going on at the moment to restore some of their stained glass windows. They're spending millions and millions of pounds on it. A cathedral built in the 1200s, the 1400s, restored. Its windows have been there for so long that the years and years and centuries of rain and dirt and grime have just started to take their toll. And so the glass no longer shows colour anymore, the, the frame's starting to fall apart. It no longer presents the picture it once did. And so they're spending their money, their time and their effort just gently try and restore those windows to help you see through them clearly, to help them you see the picture they once presented without hindrance. To slowly just, just wipe away the grime. And I hope that as we look at this psalm, we see that I think that's a little bit of what David's trying to do for us. To restore our vision to what it should be. To move us from lives that can often be sanitized to see life in full color with God front and center. Now David's call is for us to taste and see God at work in his world. And so he starts by wanting us to lift our eyes to see God for who he is. I guess if, if there's a headline thing that I think David wants us to do from this. Is that in a world that sterilizes religion, righteous people need to know and reflect the unending goodness of their God. In, in a world that often sterilizes things, righteous people need to know and reflect the unending goodness of their God. And so as we look at this psalm together, I hope it's just like a cloth, just clearing away the grime of our worldview, where life just sometimes beats us down just gently wiping it away to help us see God more clearly and so live lives that reflect his goodness. Now, David's language for God's people here, he calls it the righteous. We'll unpack a little bit of what that means, but it's his language for God's people, people who are looking to, trusting in, calling upon God's name. Those people David will refer to as righteous. So if you've closed your Bibles, now would be a great time to open them back up again. We're on page 561. And just look down at how he opens this psalm. Verses 1. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I mean, you, you get the feel for it straight, straight away. This isn't a psalm of lament or reluctance or mourning. This is a man bursting with praise for his God. But more than that too, this is a psalm of a man who's 
desperate for us to join in. I don't know if you've ever been in a room with with Andy when a Radiohead song comes on the radio. He can't help but sing, but he just doesn't want to sing on his own. He wants wants you to sing the song with him. That's kind of like what David's doing here. Did you see that the shift in his language is the movement from his experience to wanting God's people to join him in that praise? I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glorify the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Now, King David here isn't isn't sitting on a nice hill somewhere with the sun on his back. He's not kicking back, just waiting for the Premier League to start with servants at his beck and call. King David here, as he says these words, is a man on the run. He's fleeing, 1 Samuel 21 tells us, from the hand of the incumbent, Saul. He's on his own in a foreign land. He's just been before a foreign king who wants nothing to do with him. And yet here, in the midst of this, this David can lift his eyes to the king of heaven. Though he is afflicted, he will rejoice. See, David's personal experience of the Lord's deliverance led him to cry out in praise, boasting in his God and calling those who were listening to do the same. He glories in the God. Literally, David's boasting in who his God is. His opening words of testimony are not about David, his circumstance, what's going on in his life, but they're all about his God. This continual, all-encompassing praise, this selfless enthusiasm, this acknowledgement and public declaration of who his God is. So before David goes into the detail of what he's done, which comes in verse 4 onwards, He starts with the detail of of who God is. Not just in time and space, but in eternity. The praise he's eternally worthy of. And so his words here are a call to spiritual vibrancy. Not just dry orthodoxy. A call to emotional engagement, not just kind of intellectual stoicism. Right now, David is modelling a life of praise to us. My soul will boast in the Lord, verse 2 says. As as we hear that language, as we hear language of boasting, I think it can often have a a bit of an ugly tinge to us. It conjures pictures of inflated egos, delusions of grandeur. Boasting that just pushes others down. But not here. What would be an unpleasant act when focused on man is, is just transformed when God is in view. Indeed, David tells us in verse 2 that his boasting in the Lord so affects others that they too turn and rejoice when they see this God for who he is. So David starts by proclaiming a God whose majesty has just begun to grasp. He burst into song about a God eternally worthy of praise, eternally worthy of boasting in, a God so majestic, so inalienably good, that David cannot help but shout and sing about it. And so his opening words here in verses 1 to 3, the righteous are to magnify the Lord. His opening words are just taking that cloth gently and just scrubbing down our glasses so that we can see this God for who he is and join him in exalting his name together. 
The righteous, David cries, magnify the Lord. They do that because their God is at work in life. That's what we see in verses 4 to 8. The righteous magnify their Lord because he's eternally good, but also because he is at work in space and time. Thinking about holidays, I don't know if you've, you've ever been into a travel agent to get some advice about your holiday. Maybe you're, you're going to Morocco, you think, I don't know much about Morocco, let me go to a travel agent. We'll walk into somewhere on the high street. And they can tell you everything you want to know. The person you're speaking to, they, they can tell you how to get there, what the currency is, what the best hotels are. They can tell you about its, its history, its capital city, how its name came about. But you'll pay a whole lot less attention if when you asked when they went to stay there, they said, oh, well, I've never actually been. I just really like books about the place. David here hasn't read a book about what God's like and is telling us from just words on a page. He's experienced it. He's experienced this God at work and so speaks out of the God he knows. Now remember where he is again. He's, he's on the run. David here is in enemy territory. And yet his declaration is about a God who is at work in his life. His confidence is about a God he knows from personal experience. And so this experience leads him to cry out. This experience leads him to speak out, to tell his, the congregation about who this God is. I sought the Lord, verse 4, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Verse 6, this poor man called out and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. David, the man on the run, can testify that when he cried out, his God heard him. He was fearful and yet the Lord delivered him. He was poor and vulnerable and yet the Lord saved him from his trouble. Verse 7, it's as if the Lord has cordoned David off from harm and put a guard at the door to stop intruders. And so this didn't just change David's circumstances, it changed his attitude too. Where formerly there was fear writ large across his face, now he stands as one raging. Verse 5. David's testimony here isn't unique. In fact, the God that he cried out to is the God that you and me and thousands upon thousands upon millions of other Christians can cry out to today. A God who David proclaims here, hears our cries and our prayers and does act in time and space for the good of his people. David proclaims when he prays to this God, this God hears and answers. There was a comedian a couple of years ago who said that, and I'll quote this, Christians have somehow taken prayer which should be this awesome conversation with the God of the universe, and somehow they've managed to turn it into little more than quiet mumblings in cold places. Yet David's words here couldn't be starker in their contrast. Far from quiet mumblings, David's words are vibrant and full of a praise to a God he knows answers his prayers, to a God he knows has been at work for good in his life. And so he paints this picture in vivid colours that we might see our God at work. 
and he follows his personal testimony with words that have powerful application to us. Do you see that in verse 8? Look down again. To those listening, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. As David sings out God's praise for acting to deliver him, so he proclaims that all of God's people can experience the same. He calls believers to taste and see for themselves the goodness of this God, that he can act in time and space, that he is sovereign, that he does hear. And just as God rescued David, so David proclaims that we too are safe in his hands. So when the stained glass window just starts to fade, David's words here should be like a gentle cloth, gently restoring our picture to see this God for who he is and calling us to magnify his name as a result. And so the psalm moves on with a call, not just for God's people to praise him with their lips, but to do so with their lives. Righteous people live holy lives. Verses 9 to 16. It's language kind of really similar to some of the wisdom literature we see through some of the rest of the Bible. But in in verse 9, David says that there is an appropriate fear that God's people have for him. A fear that David would teach his hearers in verses 10 and 11, that we might have no lack. I wonder if if you've been walking and you're getting up up a mountain and you've got a map You've got a rough idea as to where you are, but you're not really sure. Gents, I'm sure you've experienced this, but you've never admitted it. You don't have to do it publicly, but you know, you know that picture. You know roughly where you are, but you're, you're not entirely sure which way you're going to go next. You're staring into the distance, just trying to make out one hill from another. And as the, the uncertainty is in this, just someone comes and turns the map by 90 degrees for you. And suddenly you see the landscape from a slightly different perspective, and it just clicks. Suddenly the direction forward becomes clear. The perspective has changed. I think the wisdom in this section is, is just like someone turning the map 90 degrees, enabling us to locate both ourselves and our world more accurately. While we could, we could make out the rough landscape before, now we begin to see things with much greater clarity. In a world without God, it is the quickest and the strongest and the most ruthless who lack nothing. To use David's imagery in verse 10, if you invite a lion to the barbecue, you can be certain he's the one that's not going without food. Yet though the the lion symbolizes the very essence of self-sufficiency and physical provision, here, they're the ones who lack and hunger, while those who seek the Lord for their sufficiency, lack no good thing. David reveals the landscape of God's ultimate plan, in which it is the self-sufficient predators of the world who will lack, while the God-fearing will have their needs met. And this isn't an empty promise of affluence. We'll see some of that later. But it is a steady promise of God's good and responsible care for his people. A God who will act in time and space. And so that pattern of holy life is unpacked a little bit further in verses 12 to 16. Now look down with those with me again. 
For wherever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So cut off them, the memory of them from the earth. To David Christ, the righteous are to live holy lives. Those who have cried out to the Lord, have experienced his rescue and salvation, are to live that out. In a world where the tongue is such a powerful weapon to injure and deceive, that's not to be the pattern for his people. When even can so often dominate in a fallen world and that experiences turmoil, God's people are to have eyes for good and to seek peace. A peace that doesn't come naturally. They're the same words we, we heard in 1 Peter earlier. Words there that he used to write to Christians in the first century. Words that are sobering because they present a world in which Christians can expect to be wronged and insulted, to be harmed, threatened and frightened, to be spoken maliciously and slandered against, to suffer. We shouldn't overplay that into some sort of victim complex, but both David and Peter are certain when they warn believers that the rubber of these words will hit the road at some point. And that might work out in a few different ways for you. Maybe it's in the, when the boardroom is a place of just subtle backbiting. Or you're in the coffee room that's full of gossip. When the conversation in the pub is just focused on egos and exaggeration. Well, God's people, David and Peter cry, are to live holy lives. To hold their tongue from underhand comments, from embellishment and from overstatement. In a world when one country's aggression is matched by the aggression and force of another, or colleagues are happy to cross the line to secure the deal, in that world, God's people are to live holy lives. This passage scrubs down the window to make it abundantly clear that this God does not finally pour out his blessings on those who do evil. Because, verse 15, his eyes are towards the righteous. In his grace, God's favour is turned to his people. His ears take seriously their cries and their prayers. And so both David and Peter insist that those who have received grace, who have tasted and seen, must live out this grateful, grace-fueled responsibility to righteous living. They, they insist that it must make a difference because ultimately the Lord distinguishes between those who do good and those who do evil. And so while these verses rightly call us to live holy and righteous lives, I think they also leave us with a problem. Because as you read verses 12 to 16, I don't think they readily describe us. They, they definitely don't readily describe me. How many can honestly say that their tongues have been kept from evil? That they've never been used to lash out at a spouse or a child, to manipulate or coerce? How many can say that their eyes have been kept pure, that they've seen that overtly sexual advert and have turned away immediately? That they've seen the fights, that they've seen the sides forming for the fight and have walked away? These verses don't describe me, and I don't think they describe you either. Paul would write later, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
our throats are open graves, our tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on our lips. It's our mouths that are full of cursing and bitterness. The way of peace, we don't know. So the call for the righteous to live holy lives only makes sense because our God has shown the way. When David calls us to righteous living, his words point beyond us too. Not not just to a vague ideal, but to a man, to the righteous man. One whose words and speech were always wholly filled with good. One whose words were always pure and his life wholly blameless and obedient. The one who did keep his tongue from evil when he was reviled and slandered. The one at whom Pilate was amazed when his lips were silent in the face of lies and false accusations. See, David's words here point us to the one who has ensured that evil will one day be turned to good. The truth and the hope of our gospel is not just that there is someone that could do this, but that he did it on our behalf. That his life, the righteous man, benefits our life as people who should want to live righteous lives. And so the eyes of the Lord can only look upon us because they've looked upon him. The Lord hears our cries because he heard his cry from the cross. The Lord can look upon us only because he looked away from him. The face of the Lord is not against our evil solely because Christ took it for us. At the cross, the righteous man took upon himself our unrighteousness and imputed to our our account the perfect record of his righteousness. We can be called righteous because we have his righteousness. The perfect son that was cut off from the earth, verse 16, so that we don't need to be. Because these these verses not only show us how we should live, they show us the way that Christ did live. And with his record now reckoned as ours, they call us to lives of holiness in response. The righteous people live holy lives because their God has shown the way. It's easy to, to gloss some of that over, but I guess both Peter and David are certain here that grace must motivate holy living. Righteous people are to live righteous lives because their God has shown the way. And finally, verses 17 to 22, we unpack a little bit more of what the life of those righteous can expect. I don't know if you've heard the phrase, there's only two things certain in life, death, taxes, and people who can't count. There's only three things certain in life, death, taxes, and England bottling a penalty shootout. Or maybe they say that there's only four things certain in life, death, taxes, England bottling a penalty shootout, and Americans at the congregation at St. John's being fed up with football illustrations. <laughs> but, but just like that, David tells us that there's three things that are certain in life here. Three things certain in the Christian life. That we will experience trouble that God does hear our cries and that he will deliver us in the end. 
And so what he does in verses 17 to 22 is just unpack some of that. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man will have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. The Lord is close, but who's he close to? Those who are brokenhearted. The Lord comes to the aid, but who does he come to the aid of? Those who are spiritually crushed. His words here are a picture of, of extreme suffering for the godly. It's not a sanitized or an airbrushed picture. And David knows this truth well in the context of the psalm. He's a, he's a man who knows this. This happened to me, he reminds. It happened to those Peter was writing to hundreds of years, of years later and both wrote with the certainty that this life would typify us and our experience too. Taste and see that the Lord is good, verse 8. David's written that just a few verses before, but here he reminds us that God is good even in difficulties. His goodness doesn't remove them, but it's shown through them. And where is God in all this trouble? What does verse 18 say? Where is God when the brokenhearted need them? The Lord is close. Now one author puts it like this. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, an orderly list of six good biblical reasons why this is happening just stings like salt in the wound. You don't, you don't stop the bleeding that way. A checklist might be okay when you're looking at suffering in the rearview mirror, but not when you're hurting in the present when hurting children look up in the faces of their parent, crying and asking, Daddy, why? They don't want explanations or answers or 12 reasons why. They want their father to pick them up and pat them on the backs and reassure them that everything is going to be okay. Our heartfelt plea in suffering is for assurance, fatherly assurance, that there is an order and a reality that transcends our problems, that somehow everything will be okay. God, like a father, doesn't just give us advice or a checklist or words from the sidelines. He gives us himself. Where is God in it all? Verse 18. The Lord is close. The Lord hears. The Lord saves. He's close to his people during the heartache. He's not guaranteeing that they will escape such but ensuring that he is at work to comfort and save even during them. The righteous endure troubles, David writes, because ultimately their God controls the end. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. If you're, if you're a Christian here today, caught in a battle, desperate for reassurance, well, the Lord reminds you here that in the end, the boomerang of evil will always come back 
to lie squarely with the wicked. In the end, verses 20 and 21, those who oppose God's people will bear their guilt. To the Christian, read and rejoice in verse 22. Who is our God? Who is the one that we glorify and boast in? Well, he's a God who rescues and redeems the life of his servants. Our God is the one who we can take refuge in without condemnation. Powerful words if you're a Christian. This is a God we can taste and see is good. A God who controls the end and so enables his people to to endure troubles. But these aren't just powerful words for the Christian. If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're just looking in, then I think these are powerful words for you as well. Because David says, if, if you're not on this Lord's side, then you're against him. And so he gently reminds again that in the end, the boomerang of evil will always come around to land squarely at your feet. To those looking in at Christianity, David proclaims this same God, one who protects and cares. One who provides rescue and refuge for those who see their need of it. And the words of this psalm are, are pregnant with meaning that comes to birth in the gospel. That unimaginable cost the God David wrote about hundreds of years before has redeemed the life of his people through the work of the righteous man on the cross. And so with unbounded scope, the Lord now offers refuge without condemnation to all who will come to him. So as we close, a few questions. Will you come to this Lord for refuge and redemption? Will you come to him like David in verses 1 to 3 with praise and gratitude, boasting in who he is, with the window washed down and the sun of the gospel shining through again? Will you come to this God for the hundredth time? Will you come to this God maybe for the first time? Well, after a prayer, Matt is going to come and lead us as we close in the way David says we should and the way that he started. Praising our God for who he is, for what he's done, and the righteous man he sent. Why don't I pray? The righteous magnify the Lord because their God is at work in life. The righteous live holy lives because their God has shown the way. And the righteous endure troubles because their God controls the end. Father, we praise that you are at work. Just as David could testify, so we can testify, you are at work. We praise you that you have shown the way through the righteous man. And we praise you that you control the end. Well, please would we turn to you in praise and thanksgiving, in awe and wonder, would we magnify and boast in you. Thank you that we can do that today. Lord, please would we do that individually. Please would you help us to live holy lives as we respond to that. To the great praise and glory and honor of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.